Shane Claiborne graduated from Eastern University and did graduate work at Princeton Seminary. His adventures have taken him from the streets of Calcutta, where he worked with Mother Teresa, to the wealthy suburbs of Chicago, where he served at the influential megachurch Willow Creek. As a peacemaker, his journeys have taken him to some of the most troubled regions of the world. Shane is a founder and board member of The Simple Way, a faith community in inner city Philadelphia. He's married to Katie Jo, a North Carolina girl. Shane's books include Jesus for President, Red Letter Revolution, Common Prayer, Becoming the Answer to Our Prayers, and his classic, The Irresistible Revolution. Please welcome Shane Claiborne to the stage. Thanks. I, I have just loved this weekend. It's been incredible. I, I did tell Brian that with that, that, that was very dramatic, you know, the adventures. I felt like next year I'm going to have to rappel down or something from, but, uh, boy, we're all just kind of figuring this thing out together. And I, I've been in, in Philly for 20 years doing that. That's where Brian and I met. And, uh, uh, I'm excited to get to share with you this morning. I, I am going to come out of a text. You know, it's a Sunday morning service. I'm going to I'm going to uh, get into the gospel, one of our classic stories. But before we get there, um, I wanted to uh, show you a couple of things that I bring with me uh, most everywhere these days. Uh, at the at this Love and Justice conference, we've been talking about how we we read the Bible in one hand, but we need to read the newspaper in the other. That our faith should actually connect us with the world that we live in, not just be kind of a ticket into heaven, but fuel us to care about injustice. And so I carry a few things with me with my Bible in one pocket and these in the other. This is the casing of a bullet from our block. Uh, it's a little difficult to get through airport security these days, but I manage, uh, and not out here in Montana, I'm just like, yeah, they're like, do you have a bullet in your wallet? Yeah, okay, come on through. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, but I, I carry this with me, um, and, and, and sadly, this was actually after a shooting in our neighborhood, and walking, praying through our streets, where we have about one homicide a day right now, uh, over 300 a year, 10,000 across our country, it's you know, riddled with, with violence. And so I carry that with me to, to remind me to remember. And then um, the other thing I carry with me is um, the shell of, uh, uh, the, this is a piece of metal, shrapnel, or, or a piece of the bomb that fell in Iraq uh, in March of 2003 when I was there. And uh, we were in a public market where one of those bombs hit, and uh, it's estimated about 60 people were killed. And as we walked those streets praying for, for God's kingdom and God's healing, uh, I saw this, and we, we picked that up. So I'm going to put them there uh, as a reminder that, that as we talk about Scripture and we dream the dreams of God, that we live in a pretty broken and pain-stricken world. Uh, so I know that's a pretty heavy way to start. Um, but we'll get to the good news. I have one pastor that said he's got one woman that sits on the front row, and every time he's talking, she just keeps saying, get to Jesus, get to Jesus. And he says sometimes, I'm going to get there. You we're going to get there. But, but I think before we get to the good news, we have to recognize that, uh, that, that we've got some bad news. And, you know, as we, before we get to the New Testament, I, I, I want to do a little trivia. And now the 9 o'clock didn't do quite as well with this, but Brian told me the 11 o'clock is much smarter. Um, so, but, you know, the original sin, I think a lot of us know Adam and Eve, you know, eating of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. But then the next kind of iteration of that sin is a story that we have. Uh, 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 and, and so what is the next kind of evolution of sin after the Garden? See, I knew you were. Cain and Abel, right? And the inaugural 
act of life outside of the garden is murder, right? It's, it's a brother killing a brother. And then what happens, I think, is very interesting. The Lord comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? And Cain says, I don't know. And the Lord says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I, I, when I hear that, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I think we can't help but think of the blood that has plagued this world, right? I mean, even in Montana, the, the, the history of Native Americans and what might have happened here, and we think of what's happening in Ferguson and the blood of Michael Brown on, on the streets of Ferguson. We think of uh, so many of the things that we've heard about, the blood of children in sweatshops and sex trafficking and domestic violence and all of this stuff. Um, and so that's the, the, the kind of backdrop is the very beginnings of sin. Are, are, uh, the fruits of it are, are, are violence and bloodshed, and that matters to God. It, it cries out to God from the earth. And so the story that we're, that's kind of bonus, the, the story that we're going to look at is a story of violence, a story of injustice. Uh, it's a story that might be a little familiar. Uh, if you're new to church and stuff, then, then just listen to this. It's a great story Jesus told. If, if you've been around for a while, you might have to shake off, uh, you know, the, the, the versions of hearing this and just hear it fresh today. But this is a story of the Good Samaritan, and I'm, I'm going to read it this morning. A man, Jesus said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. The robbers stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, uh, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan came, and as he traveled, he came to where the man was. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured out oil and wine on the man, and then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Look after this man, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you have. And Jesus said, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Well, as we think of that story, uh, uh, there's... Uh, there's, there's probably some gems that we can kind of take out of it. And w one of the things that's interesting, I've read a bunch of sermons on this, this text and some of them from the early Christians. And one of the things that uh, the scholars point out is that we don't know much about the man who was beat up. Right? I mean, we, 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 we don't know much about him at all. He's, he, uh, the, the scholars say there's two ways that you could identify someone in, the, in this time. And one of those was by the clothes that they wore, and the other was by the language or the dialect that they spoke. And both of those things have been stripped off of him, right? So his, his clothes are ripped off so no one can know what region or tribe or what, you know, if, if, by his clothes. He's knocked unconscious, and so we can't hear his accent. We don't know where he's from. So I think the 
point is pretty clear that all we know about the victim is that he was a human being made in the child of, uh, as a child of God. We don't know his sexual identity or where he's from or what he believed. We just know he was a child made in the image of God and he mattered to God. Now, the religious folks, those are the next characters, right? They come by uh, a priest and a Levite, kind of the quintessential religious people of the time. They come by, and they do nothing. In fact, they cross to the other side to avoid uh, the situation. They go on. I don't know exactly why. We don't, we're, we're not really told why. Uh, maybe they were late to a, a board meeting or something. You know, uh, one of my friends says, if, if the devil can't steal your soul, then he'll just keep you real busy with committees and meetings. And, and so I, I, I don't don't know, but we know that they were religious, devout, and yet their religion did nothing to move them in compassion, right, to do something about the injustice. Maybe they were scared. You know, someone said those bandits might have still been around, but what we do know is if they were scared of what was going to happen to them, the Samaritan that comes next was scared of what might happen to this person if he didn't stop because he comes by. And a Samaritan, you know, it's, this is the scandal of the story. I, lo- I love it because sometimes we read these stories and you're just like, oh, this is kind of like a, a fairy tale, you know? And you're like, this was scandalous. Like, uh, it, in, uh, you know, if we, we kind of try to have first century ears, a Samaritan was absolutely ostracized. Like, uh, folks went, way out of their way working like walking miles to get around Samaria so they didn't have to go through it and Samaritans were outcast and ostracized for a couple reasons one of them was ethnicity they were a mixed race and so they were really kind of shunned because of that they were also shunned because of uh, some of their theological beliefs they didn't have orthodox theology about how or where you worship God and so they were very much ostracized and yet Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero And we wonder what got him killed. It was telling stories like this, you know. Like, you, and, and so the, the Samaritan is the hero. The religious folks do nothing. And and uh, Sister Joan Chittister, she's a fiery Catholic nun, and she says one of the things that Jesus consistently does is include the excluded and challenge the chosen. Right. So Jesus says to the to the people who are the religious folks, the Pharisees and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. So he's always making unlikely. Heroes, and I love that because the Samaritan, it says, was moved in his gut. This word compassion is a, an aching in the gut, and so he responds and he does something and he, he cares for this person. Now, I, I think there's a few other things that maybe we can uh, learn from the story, and, and one of those is that we need to walk down the streets where people get beat up. That everything in our world is trying to pull us out of neighborhoods where people get beat up. I mean, it's what sprawls built around. It's what like, so much of our culture is pulling us away from our night neighborhoods where there's high crime or there's people that don't look like us, right? That, that's what the gravity of our culture is. But the gravity of the gospel calls us into the pain, doesn't it? It calls us into the trenches. Uh, I, I was talking to this one pastor not too long ago. It's like Christmas is the worst. Uh, like we forget it at Christmas. Everything gets cluttered. And he, this one pastor said, we were getting ready for our Christmas services and we had the place decked out with decorations and this beautiful cantata and the Christmas tree and lights. And he said, in the night before the Christmas service, I felt like God just started creating 
an uneasiness in my spirit, and I praying at the altar, and he said, and then I, I felt like God wanted me to rip down all the decorations, and so, but we had done all this prayer, he said, I kept praying, but then it got clearer and clearer, louder and louder, and he said, God was telling me to rip down all the decorations, he said, so I did it, I worked all night, and he said, and then it got weirder. God kind of nudged me to go out to my ranch and get a bunch of the cow manure, and bring it back and put it on the altar. And he said, so who am I to say no to God? He said, I brought the dookie, and we put it in the aisles. We put it in the altar, and the next morning, everyone came to the Sunday service. It was awkward, you know. He said, there they are in their best-dressed clothes for the Sunday service. And he said, and they're smelling the poop. He said, but it's one of the most powerful services we ever had. What God did on that that Christmas service was remind us that this is about a God who moves into the crap, a God who is familiar with suffering, that when Jesus was born as a refugee, little babies were getting killed all over the land from Herod, an oppressive leader, right? That this story is a story of a God who's familiar with suffering. So we are invited not to move away from suffering, but to enter into it, to connect to it. And uh, there's a great song from Derek Webb. Uh, he's a singer and songwriter down in Nashville. He says, God, life's been good. I've finally been able to move out of Jesus' neighborhood. Uh, because so much we can see that, that the, the compelling patterns of our culture pull us out of it. But I think that's why communities like Journey and conferences like Love and Justice are so important because they create a critical mass where we go, we're going to live differently, right? We're we're not going to move away from the pain. We're going to go into it. We're going to carry the bury bury the bear the burdens of those who have way too much on their shoulders. So I, this call to the suffering of the world is there. We see that um, I think also in the story of the Good Samaritan, like we can we can recognize that like people get beat up at really inconvenient times. Right? I mean, like, I think that's part of the problem is, like, these guys are on their way somewhere, and they get distracted. I mean, it hijacks the entire day of the Samaritan, right? Like, the brother ends up having to go to an end. Like, and, and, and I think, like, in our culture, we're so obsessed with our calendars and routines and schedules that sometimes we do not even have space to be interrupted by injustice or interrupted by someone else's pain. And yet you read the Gospels and like almost every, like half the stories in the Gospels are one interruption after another. You know, Jesus is on his way somewhere and somebody pulls on his shirt, you know, or they're like, hey, uh, my son is sick. Can you come over? Or they're like, uh, we ran out of wine at our wedding. Can you help a brother out? You know, and so they're like, they're distractions, they're interruptions and Jesus is available and so maybe part of this is an in, 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 invitation for us to allow ourselves to be interrupted. And, and I, I also think uh, of the words of Dr. King who reflected on this story. And he said, uh, we're called to be the good Samaritan. But also, there's more to this story that after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you also start to say, maybe we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho. Right? Maybe we also need to ask what's landing people in the ditch. And I think that's maybe a, another side of this story that we're, we're called to be moved in compassion, but also a part of justice. What we've been talking about this weekend is also to ask what is landing people in the ditch, right? Uh, what, what are the wheels that are rolling over people and how can we continue to interrupt the patterns of injustice? So I want to, um, 
I want to tell you a, a story that uh, as I have thought of this, I've always kind of read this text as uh, uh, the, the person walking down the street, you know, and will I have the eyes to see the people in the ditch? But when I went to Iraq, I, I, I kind of had new eyes to see this story. And, and the first time I went to Iraq uh, was March of 2003. Um, and so that was, I was with an amazing team of doctors and nurses and pastors and all kinds of different folks together. Um, and we were there uh, during the bombing and, and the beginning of the war in Iraq in, in 2003. And so we saw some of the most horrific things that I've ever seen, you know, like the, the places that we went after bombings. We volunteered in the hospitals every day. We saw some of the hardest things I've ever seen. But what we also saw was this incredible hope. Like almost everywhere we went, this hospitality, generosity, and we saw the Spirit of God moving uh, among these people. And, and I, I don't know exactly what I expected, but it certainly wasn't what I found. And one of the most powerful moments in Baghdad for me was when we had this worship service. And there were thousands of people from all over the Middle East and especially from all over Iraq that had gotten together to pray for peace. And as we're praying, uh, the bishops from all different denominations read a statement that they had written together to Muslim people. And, and they said, we want you to know that we love you. And we believe you're created from the same dirt of this earth that God breathed life into. And that you're made in the image of God every much as we are. And, and, and we come from the same dysfunctional family of Abraham and Sarah. And so they said, we're praying for peace and for healing. And then one of the, uh, the bishops pointed to the cross. And he said, this cross doesn't make any sense to the wisdom of the world or the smarts of smart bombs. But this cross teaches us another way. It teaches us a way that leads to life. It teaches us a way to forgive even those who would want to do us harm. And then we sing Amazing Grace in Arabic. I did my best. I kind of hummed along, you know. But uh, as I'm listening to Amazing Grace in Arabic, I got these tears rolling down my face, and I, I kind of beelined up after the song, at the end of the song, to the altar, and I, I grabbed one of those bishops, and I, I was so excited, I just couldn't, I, I was, you know, bouncing. I said, like, I can't believe it. Like, this is so powerful. God is here. And, and then I said something a little ignorant. I said, I had no idea that there were so many Christians in Iraq. And the bishop, the bishop goes, yes, this is where Christianity started, son. <laughs> and, and then he pointed out the window and he goes, that is the Tigris River and the Euphrates. Have you heard of them? He said, the, the Garden of Eden, it was right down the street. <laughs> you know, and, and he said, you didn't invent Christianity in North America. He said, you guys just domesticated it. And he said, you go back and you tell the church in North America that we are praying for them. We're praying for them uh, to, to wake up to injustice, to remember who they are, and to be the presence of Christ's love in the world. So those words kind of echoed in my soul, and, and then the time came to leave, and, the, and that's where uh, this kind of new eyes for the Good Samaritan story happened. We were driving from uh, Baghdad to Amman, Jordan, and it's a, it's a really treacherous journey anyway through the desert, but when we were driving at these hours and hours through the desert, there's 
you know, bombs that are falling, there's bridges down, cars that are on fire. It was surreal. Um, and, and, and as we're driving, we hit something in the road that popped the tire of our car, and it spun our car off the road. Our car uh, flipped over, and it went into a ditch. There was a pretty sudden impact, and, and all of us were injured. Uh, two of my friends were injured very badly. And so the, with the car on its side, we're trying to get everybody lifted out of the window at the side. And, and we managed to do that. We get to the side of the road. And literally, as we're sitting on the side of the road, not sure if all of us were going to live, we start praying and, and, and thinking, God, you've got to do something, you know. And, and then this car starts to peter down the road. And I mean, there's not much traffic at this point. So eventually there's a car and and the first car that passes us stops. And these Iraqi guys jump out of the car and they they wrap their arms around us and they can tell that we need help desperately. So they, they immediately bring us into their car and they drive us into the nearest town and they get us into this town and when we get there, I mean, it's a little town, a little town called Rutba in the Anbar province. So when we get there, like, uh, pe- people start to gather. I mean, it's pretty big news. You know, they're like, wow, these Americans. And they, they end up taking us to the hospital because they can tell that we're, two of my friends need a lot of help. And uh, as we get to the hospital, the doctors come out, and they're waving their hands in the air. And they're going, why, why, why is this happening? And they start naming everything that's been bombed in their town. And then they said, Two days ago, one of the bombs hit the hospital. It it hit the children's ward. And they said, so now the whole hospital has been closed. And and the doctors could see, you know, our hearts sink. and, uh, And they said, but don't worry. We'll still take care of you. We just can't do it in the hospital. And they set up this little shanty makeshift clinic for each of us with a bed, you know. And they, they began nursing my friend back to life. And I, I'm, I'm just blown away. And uh, I start thinking, how can we thank them enough, you know. And, and, and my, <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed, but my American mind goes to money. So I start, like, asking everybody that in, in our group, like, give me, let's give them all of our money, you know, just to say thank you. So I get all, this huge pile of money at Iraqi Dinar. And after the, the, the amazing work of, of, of bandaging up my friend's head uh, and, and taking care of all of us, I go to the head of the hospital, and I said, we just want to say thank you. And I hand him the money. <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, you just want to say thank you. Then just say thank you. And he says, you can keep your money. And he said this, I, we want you to know that there's no other motivation for us taking care of you except that we love you. And we hope if you found us wounded on the side of the road, you would do the same thing. For when we saw you come into our town, we didn't just see some Americans We saw our own flesh and blood. We saw a brother or a sister. And and so it's a great privilege to get to take care of you. And we've came back, and we've been so inspired by that story, you know, that we've been telling it as they told us to ever since. And, in fact, one of our communities, we've got a little Christian community down in Durham, North Carolina, and it's called Rootba House. It's, it's named after the town, and they, their, their vision is to practice hospitality and, and, and reconciliation there. And so it's always been our dream to go back. But, you know, it's not real easy to travel from the United States to Iraq. Um, you may have guessed or experienced it. Uh, but 
but so we we like decided we wanted to go back a little bit ago, and and uh, we start jumping through all the hoops. Eventually, we um, get to uh, you know everything to go back to Iraq, and we drive back that desert road from uh, Amman back to Rutba. And a, as we go, like uh, we when we get there. I mean, it is amazing. We are met by the biggest celebration I've ever seen. Uh, it felt like we were royalty or something. They parade us into the town, and they're like, we're so excited that you came back. And, uh, and they said, when we first heard you were coming back, we thought you must have forgotten something really valuable. Uh, and they said, but we heard you came back just to, to continue to build the friendship. And, and they said, uh, and we also don't get a lot of visitors. We haven't had anyone come since you were here before. So this is great, you know, and then one of the guys goes, uh, now you should know there are a few people that might want to kill you, and um, he said, but it's only a few, and and uh, and he said, we'll take care of them, and they slept by our beds with AK-47s, and I'm like, this does not exactly fit into my theology of nonviolence, but thanks for the hospitality, you know, and, and so we, we, but we're there, and we're meeting all of the sheikhs, and the leaders, and the heads of the schools, and the, and, and then they said, and now, You've got to meet the mayor. So they take us in to meet the mayor. And we go to meet the mayor. And the mayor's heard the whole story. And we, we actually told the Good Samaritan story. And we said, this is at the heart of our faith. And, and what you did for us is so beautiful. And we're so grateful. And, uh, and the mayor's like, this is the stuff that changes the world. And he said, we need a sister city in the United States. We need to keep this friendship. And I'm like, Philadelphia. I'm like, it's the city of love. you know. And the mayor goes, no. Uh, he says, Philadelphia is a huge city. He says, we're just a little town, and so we need a little town in the U.S. And he talks with one of his buddies, uh, and he says, I've been to one town in the United States. Hold on, and, I, and he got a translation, and he said, have you ever heard of Durham, North Carolina? And I'm like, whoa, right? I'm like, we've got a community in Durham, and it's named Rootba House. It's named after what you did for us. And, and he goes, the mayor says, then it's done. And he says, we will be a sister city with Durham. And then he said, and we will start a community in Rupa that's committed to peacemaking and reconciliation and compassion. And we will call it Durham House. And so those friendships, I, I'm convinced that uh, that is the stuff that moves the world, right? And it's when um, we have the capacity to see beyond all of those fears and divisions and hostilities and be moved in our guts with compassion for other people. It causes us to take risks that don't make sense. It causes us to confound the patterns with subversive friendships that cross all the, the boundaries and borders that we put around love. And I'm convinced of this too, that Part of why we don't see a lot of miracles is because we very rarely venture into that kind of liminal space where we need them. You know, I, I can remember one of my friends telling me, like, uh, he lives in Latin America, and he was saying, you guys don't really see a ton of miracles in the United States uh, because you don't really need miracles very often. You know, if you get sick, you just go to the hospital. You get hungry, you go to the grocery store. And, and he said, but in, in a lot of places, we survive off of miracles. You know, he said, uh, we, it, when we live in, in ways that, that it's, it's the, requires miracles, that, that we, we begin to see them. You know, and he, he told me this story. He said, um, 
this one day, they have a medical clinic, and uh, they don't always have medicine, though, he said, which is awkward. You know, we run a clinic that we don't always have medicine, he said, but we always have prayer, and God moves. We see God move. He said, this one day, all that they had when they opened their clinic was a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. And he said, so we, we thought we're going to need a lot of prayer today, you know. And people started coming. He said, we would give them Pepto-Bismol, but then we'd pray for them, and folks started getting healed. You know, he said, it didn't matter if they had, you know, arthritis or a gash on their arm. They got Pepto in a prayer. Uh, but people started, this isn't a Pepto commercial, but, you know, but anyway, he said, but people started getting healed, and they would go back to their village, and they would show it and talk about it. And he said, swarms of people started coming. They were lined up all the way outside of the village. And he said, somehow that day, the bottle of Pepto-Bismol never ran out, People never stop getting healed. He said, I think that we can see those miracles, but I'm convinced of this, that we've got to risk a little bit more. We've got to get into those places where we know that God exists in, in the suffering and in the pain. But the greatest miracle in the world is Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection and what we can see on the cross is what perfect love looks like when it stares evil in the face. And that love that we see on the cross is so amazing that He says, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. He, his arms are so big that He forgives those who are killing Him. His love is so big. And so as we think of that and what it means for today, I, I think that's the greatest miracle. But I think the second greatest miracle is that Jesus wants to live inside of us. <laughs> I don't know if you thought about that, but like in John's gospel, Jesus says to the disciples, I'm going to the Father, but don't worry, I'm going to live in you. In fact, you'll do the same stuff that I've been doing and even greater things than these because I'm going to live and walk the earth in you. <laughs> and I think of that, and it like boggles my mind. That like, can we imagine if we walked these streets? believing that the Spirit of God lives in us, that the life we live, as Paul said, we no longer live, but Jesus lives inside of us, that we may actually be the very people that God is waiting on to heal the broken wounds of this world. Sometimes I think we uh, are waiting on God and God is waiting on us. You know, that that we are actually uh, like the Samaritan. We have a choice that we can ignore injustice or we can dive in with the broken and do something about injustice. And so as we think about that, I want to leave you with one image that is one of the most powerful images of, of this kind of Samaritan compassion I've ever seen. It's, it's uh, Mother Teresa's sister uh, has, has rescued a kid that's been in a bombing. And I should say, even when we were in Baghdad, Mother Teresa's nuns were there. They're hard to miss because they wear these blue and white saris everywhere, right? These, these um, uh, this and so I saw them and I was like, "Hey, you're with Mother Teresa," and they're like, "Yeah, you know." And 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 then I said to them, they were at that service that I told you about. I said, "Are you guys gonna leave when the bombs start to fall?" And this nun said, "Of course not. The orphans can't leave. Why would we leave?" So they stayed. They were in Baghdad during that. And 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 this nun is has that same courage. This is sometime earlier in a bombing. She. Uh, uh, has rescued a kid in the Beirut bombing. In fact, I was telling Brian last night, what happened was they were in the middle of a war and the Mother Teresa and the nun said, we're going in to rescue the children. And every authority said, there's no way you can go in there. This is the middle of a bombing. And they, they, the Mother Teresa said, we will pray all night long and there will be a ceasefire tomorrow. 
And sure enough, at noon, they went into the middle of that conflict and rescued these kids. This kid that you're going to see is suffering from malnutrition, but he's also suffering because he's been in a bombing. He's got post-traumatic stress syndrome, so he looks just like the kids that we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. His body's shaking from the, the trauma. But this is what I want you to see. Even more powerful than the pain is the power of God's love to bring this kid back to life as it kind of oozes through the hands of this nun. So check this out. It's it's almost a mystical encounter, isn't it? I mean, there's not even words really in it. But what we can see is that love has the power to bring people back to life. God is a God of resurrection. At the very heart of our faith is that life is more powerful than death. And love is stronger than hatred. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would would have the eyes to see, right? The, 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 The blood that's crying out to God from the land. The folks that are wounded in the side of the road. That we would... Think about what that means for us today to be interrupted by the injustices. But also that we would have this amazing faith that God wants to do something incredible in the world around us. That God wants to live in us. That God is inviting us to be the body of Christ, the hands and feet, to love people back to life. So let's pray together. Forgive us, God, for the mess that we've made of the world. We thank you that you you created a perfect world. A perfect world. And we we ask for forgiveness for the ways that we diverge from your plan and we create pain and wounds and blood in the land. We pray that you would heal us, that you would heal our land, that you would heal our hearts, that you would heal our world. We think of the situation in Ferguson and the blood of Michael Brown. We think of Darren Wilson. We pray that you would heal Ferguson, we pray that you would heal Bozeman, that you would heal Iraq and Afghanistan and Israel and Palestine and all the troubled corners of the world. And sometimes, God, we know you want to do something right next to us, not on the other side of the world. So we pray that you would give us eyes to see injustice here. You would give us dreams of your kingdom coming in Montana as it is in heaven. So move among us. And you let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. On earth. On earth. In Christ's name.
been to be with all of you. Will you just go live the love and justice of God? Everywhere you go, every person you're with, all day long, every, will you just go live the love and justice of God? Just go do that. Let's do that and keep doing that. And we'll steward this little spark of what God's doing. And it might just someday become something quite amazing in the eyes of God. I love you all. Hope you have a terrific Thanksgiving, and I'll see you real soon. Bye-bye.